seem to be a lot of those folks around. <clears throat> it is a great privilege and a pleasure for me to be here tonight for us, my husband and me. And before I go further, let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. I want to talk to you tonight about the disciples' expectations. Disciple simply means learner. And so I'm assuming that this entire audience is made up of people who are willing to learn. You know the word discipline. You know that it comes from the Latin word to teach, to learn. And so Jesus made very clear the conditions of discipleship. He said, if you want to be my disciple, you must give up your right to yourself and take up the cross and follow me. Those are three very simple principles, none of them easy. But they're clear, aren't they? Deny thyself. In the world today, we hear a great deal about denial as being a very dangerous psychological problem for which we need counseling. But Jesus makes it perfectly clear that there will be no discipleship until we have denied ourselves, given up our right to ourselves, which then qualifies us to receive the cross in whatever form God presents it to us. And then the third thing is a daily putting one foot in front of the other in obedience. The first condition is self-abandonment, self-donation, someone has put it, self-mortification. And you Latin students know from whence comes the word mortification. It means death, death to the self. And those are hard conditions, hard for all of us. I often have letters from listeners who tell me that things that I say are so hard, or they write to me and they say, well, I'm really having a hard time with what you said about so-and-so. Well, of course, what I said comes out of this book, not Elizabeth Elliot books, I trust that my books are in harmony with the book, but Jesus did not mince words. He laid out the hard principles right from the very beginning. And I find it very interesting that Jesus put the most difficult thing first. Surely there is no more difficult thing for us very selfish and self-centered and self-loving individuals than giving up our right to ourselves. So he put that right at the front, and then he said, take up the cross, which of course has got to mean suffering. How else could we possibly imagine it to be, if not suffering? The taking up of the cross is suffering in one form or another. Things that cut across our preferences. My second husband, named Addison Leach, who was a theologian and a philosopher, used to say that when the will of God cuts across the will of man, Somebody has to die. Take up the cross. 
that is, that is a wholehearted acceptance, receiving of what God wants to give us in whatever form, in whatever measure of suffering. And then he tells us that we are to follow him, a daily obedience. When Jim Elliott and I were brand new missionaries, Jim was single, I was single, we were not engaged to each other at the time, but we happened to arrive in Ecuador within about six or eight weeks of each other, and Pete had gone out with, uh, Jim had gone out with a friend named Pete Fleming, and the two of them were learning Spanish in one non-English speaking household, and my friend Dorothy and I, my colleague, were learning Spanish in another non-English speaking household. And during just those first six months in the capital city of Quito, 20 missionaries left the field. Now, Ecuador is a small country, and we were staggered. We brand new, very eager, excited missionaries couldn't imagine missionaries leaving the field. 20 of them, 20 families, I think it really was. And we puzzled and pondered over that, and I still puzzle, puzzle and ponder over it, the tremendous attrition rate on the mission field. Of course, there are usually there are two excuses that are right at the top of the list. It's health problems or children problems. Your children have to go to school, you have to go back to the States, or you have to go, you have uh, health problems or something. But I couldn't help wondering if there were some other reasons which perhaps would not be put forth. One of them being the fact that the missionary life, mission fields, are always different from what people expect. And when I have an opportunity to talk to young people who are eagerly looking forward to either a summer missions program, perhaps, or a longer term, perhaps lifetime missions, they ask me for advice, and I tell them right up at the front that the will of God is going to be very different from what they expect. It's going to be a great deal harder. It's going to be tough. It's going to be uh, much bigger, and I can promise them if they stick it out, it will be far more glorious than anything they can imagine. But don't suppose that you're going to be able to escape self-denial and the giving up, the taking up of the cross and that daily obedience. When they ask me for suggestions about preparation for the mission field, what school do I have to go to? What degrees do I have to have? What skills must I learn? I don't have very many answers to those, those questions. I just say, far and away beyond the importance of any of those things you've mentioned is a deep understanding of the way of the cross. Don't even think of going to the foreign mission field until you've learned to give up your right to yourself and take up the cross and follow Jesus. And I'm very aware that I'm not looking at, at everybody who's prospective missionaries here. We are in various stages of life. Some of us probably way past 
the possibility of going for a lifetime of missionary work, but there are some young people here. Many of you perhaps are hoping that God will call you to the mission field, and how I thank God for that attitude. As long as I can remember, I wanted to be a foreign missionary, and I prayed that God would give me that privilege. And in my view, as a child, real missionaries were supposed to live under thatched roofs in jungles. And that was the desire of my heart, and God fulfilled that desire, not once and again, but again and again, many different places, many different areas in the jungle. But I began very early to understand that the way of the cross is hard. How can we imagine it will be easy? Of course it will not be. And when Jesus called his disciples, he made it perfectly clear to them that there would be good news, wonderful things that he would enable them to do. They were to spread the good news. They were to have compassion on people. They were to have the authority to heal the sick and to raise the dead. They were to propagate the message of the kingdom of heaven. And he went on to say, you will be sent out like sheep among wolves. You have to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And he went on to say, without any equivocation, you will be arrested. You will be flogged. Brother will betray brother. All will hate you. And then he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. You're worth more than many sparrows. I send you out to bring not peace, but a sword. But there will be gain out of loss. You're not to worry about rewards. That passage, of course, is in Matthew 9, 35 through chapter 10. And one of the verses that I always want to give these eager young people is Matthew 10:24. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. It is enough. It's quite possible, as A.W. Tozer has so graphically stated in his little tract called Exposition. Exposition must have application. He says, the Bible is more than a volume of hitherto unknown facts about God, man, and the universe. It is a book of exhortation based upon those facts. By far the greater portion of the book is devoted to an urgent effort to persuade people to alter their ways and bring their lives into harmony with the will of God as set forth in its pages. No man is better for knowing that God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. The devil knows that. And so did Ahab and Judas Iscariot. No man is better for knowing that God so loved the world of men that he gave his only begotten son to die for their redemption. In hell, there are millions who know that. Theological truth is useless until it is obeyed. Until it is obeyed. 
some of those people that left the mission field did so because they were given what they considered the wrong assignment. The mission board misdirected them. Some of them left because their gifts were not appreciated. They thought they were going to do this job and they were given that job. Well, I never met a missionary who'd been there for very long who hadn't, with a smile, said, yes, it was very different from what I expected. I was given all sorts of jobs I never dreamed of doing. And as a jungle missionary, I found myself not only doing Bible translation work, which was what I had longed for and aimed at and thought sounded very exciting, but you know, if you're the only person within 100 miles who has clean hands and common sense, you get to be a very famous quack, and people come around asking you to do things like giving injections and worm medicine and pills and delivering babies. That was not on my agenda. And I did spend a good bit of time reaming out gasoline pressure lanterns, the most miserable and utterly unworkable pieces of equipment that we couldn't do without. When Jim died, I had to learn how to run a diesel generator and how to be the foreman of 40 Indians who kept our airstrip cleaned with their machetes. All of this is part of God's discipleship school. Anything he says, here I am, Lord, do with me anything you want. And that was, the, that was certainly the wholehearted consecration that I had made way back when I was 12 years old, in fact. I had run across a prayer written by Betty Scott Stam that said, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. And work out thy whole will in my life at any cost. At any cost. Now and forever. Those words sank very deeply into my heart because that lady had visited in our home when she was on her way to China to marry her fiancé, John Stamm. And when I was eight years old, I learned that she and her husband had been beheaded by Chinese communists. Nothing new about that sort of thing, really. They tell us now that there have been more martyrs in the last 50 years, which is since the death of John and Betty Stamm, than in all Christian history heretofore. Sacrifice is what it means, a disciple's expectation. Are you prepared to give up your right to yourself? Some of us gray heads and white heads are still learning. I'm ashamed to think how many decades it has taken me to grasp the seriousness, the unequivocal claims of Jesus Christ. It is enough for the servant to be as his Lord. You got a job that you never expected God was going to give you? Read Nehemiah 3.8. It says there that a goldsmith and a perfume maker helped to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. 
Imagine being a goldsmith and a perfume maker and ending up building a wall. They were people who were willing to do what needed to be done. And Amy Carmichael, that great Irish missionary to South India, said, there is no calculating the value of a missionary who will come to India to do anything that needs to be done. Tozer goes on to say, what is generally overlooked is that truth as set forth in the Christian scriptures is a moral thing. It is not addressed to the intellect only, but to the will also. And I think of all the thousands of students who go to Christian colleges, then they go to Christian seminaries, they can re repeat all the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel, and they can tell you everything about the books of the Bible, and they perhaps know Greek and Hebrew. But the word of God is set forth as a moral thing. Its, ob its obligations cannot be discharged by grasping it mentally. Truth engages the citadel of the human heart and is not satisfied until it has conquered everything there. The will must come forth and surrender its sword. It must stand at attention to receive orders and those orders it must joyfully obey. I had a very highly privileged upbringing, and it is awesome to me to realize what tremendous responsibility has been laid upon me because of that. And I'm sure my four brothers and my sister feel exactly the same. We had godly parents, seven-day-a-week kind of Christians. They were missionaries. I was born overseas. We had missionaries coming through our home after my father came back to the United States for another assignment that the Lord had given him. We had missionaries coming through our home by the dozens. I have my mother's guest book to this day, and it has 42 countries rep represented in it. We heard missionary stories firsthand. We read missionary books. We saw thousands of very poor missionary slides back in those days. We heard missionaries speak, and we listened to their stories at our dinner table. It's not, not surprising that five of the six of us became missionaries. The sixth has always been in higher education, Christian education. But when I went to Ecuador, it was with tremendous enthusiasm and thrill to think that God had given me a gift in linguistics, which I discovered when I was in college. I had learned that there were 2,000 languages that had never been reduced to writing. It seemed reasonable to me to put two and two together and think, well, here's a gift that God has given me. There are tribes in Ecuador whose languages have never been reduced to writing, so this is what God is calling me to do. And it was indeed what he was calling me to do. I got down on my knees between my junior and senior years in college and prayed, Lord, is this just my idea, or are you really beckoning me to that country and that particular work? And through his word and in various ways, God confirmed to me that that was his place. I spent six months in the capital city of Ecuador learning Spanish, of course, that's the national language. But then I went to the western jungle where two British women had been working for five years without any su success in learning the language of the Colorado Indians. This was a very small tribe of Indians 
so named by the Spanish-speaking people. Colorado simply means red in Spanish, a good name for this tribe because they painted themselves. Brilliant red from head to toe. They were quite a scene in the jungle. The backdrop of the green leaves and these brilliant red bodies with bright red hair plastered with a mixture of Vaseline, which they bought from the white man, mixed it with the red dye. But they had an unwritten language that nobody had ever learned outside of that tribe, as far as we knew. There was no interpreter. The Colorados themselves spoke very, very little Spanish, and as far as we knew, no one had ever learned their language. So if I was going to reduce their writing to la- their language to writing, I was going to have to learn the language first, of course. And I prayed. Pretty obvious thing to do, that God would do a miracle and somehow send me somebody that could be a helper, what we call an informant in the reduction to writing of that language. God answered that prayer most wonderfully. And we found a man by the name of Don Macario, who turned out to be a Christian, a man who loved the Lord and was absolutely thrilled with the idea that he could participate in missionary work. Furthermore, he had no job at the time. He was willing to work for me at my price and in my time. It was just beyond anything I had dreamed of praying for, all those details. And to top it all off, this man was bilingual. He had grown up with the Colorado Indians on an hacienda as a child, and so he spoke both languages perfectly. It was with great delight and enthusiasm that the two of us began to work together and then became... Then there happened the beginning of four major blows to my faith in that very first year as a missionary. Now, you wouldn't think that God would give you four major blows in the first year, would you? It wouldn't seem to be the best way to encourage a new missionary to stick it out. But God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform, He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. How often have you said, I don't understand why God does these things or why God lets these things happen. One lady actually said to my second husband, Addison Leach, sometimes I don't understand God. And he said, join the club. Is there anybody here that would claim to understand Almighty God? Well, I never doubted that he does know what he's doing. So, Makadio and I began to work very happily together. We would spend about one hour a day early in the morning And for the rest of the day, six or seven hours, I would spend analyzing the materials that he had given me. All he did was sit there and talk Colorado. I would try to write it down phonetically. He couldn't help me with that. He'd never seen an alphabet for Colorado, nor had anybody else. 
But, of course, he could give me an interpretation. If I would try to read back to him what I had written, of course, there were very many mistakes in my uh, transcription, but he could give me in Spanish what it meant. So we worked very happily, very successfully, and fruitfully together for a number of weeks. But I was on my knees, maybe not on my knees, but at least that by my bed early in the morning reading my Bible and praying, and I had just read the passage in 1 Peter 4 that says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial that is to try you as though some strange thing happened. It happens to give you a share in Christ's sufferings. And right about that moment, I heard gunshots. That was not unusual at all. We heard gunshots every day because the white men who lived in that little clearing in the jungle hunted with guns and the Indians, of course, had not been slow to buy guns from the white men and find that they were much more efficient for their hunting than their own weapons. And so we heard gunshots virtually every day. But these were followed by people screaming and horses galloping and general pandemonium. Of course, I got up off my knees or from my bed or wherever I was, and I ran down to see what in the world had happened, and I learned that Don Macario, my informant, had just been murdered. I stood and looked at that corpse with a great hole in the head, and I couldn't help thinking, well, there goes the Colorado language. And, of course, I confess that I used that three-letter word to God. Why? God knew there was nobody else in the world equipped to do what Del Mercadio had been doing for me. We hadn't gotten very far. Why would God allow this to happen? And I felt as though I was standing looking into a deep abyss from which there was no answering echo, no light, no explanation. And I kept saying, why? The only thing God ever says to me when I say that question, ask that question, is trust me. I do know what I'm doing. I've got the whole world in my hands. I don't make any mistakes. Just trust me. There was nothing for me to do but to carry on with the work with far greater difficulty, of course. God didn't send me another informant like Don Macadio. There wasn't anybody else. It took me a lot more time and effort and many, many, many mistakes to continue with work. Then, not very long after that, I went with one of these British women to deliver a baby. And I watched the mother and the baby die horrifying experience, blood all over the place. The three men who claimed her as their woman, so nobody really knew which one was the father, they happened to be a father and two sons, all three of whom used this woman, and they had had a number of children by her, nobody knew who was which, but they went, they were just absolutely hysterical and beside themselves, screaming and howling in the middle of a very, very dark night. It was just a hideous scene. I was deeply shaken. Why would God let that happen? 
These two British women were both midwives. They had seen, they had delivered other babies of this same woman, all of them with complications. And when they learned that she was pregnant for the tenth time or something, they went to these three men and they said, you must make sure that this woman gets to a hospital at least six weeks before you expect that baby. We cannot take any responsibility. And they promised faithfully that they would do that, but they didn't do it. That was a second hammer blow to me. I never really got over that scene. But during that year, the most wonderful thing that could ever possibly happen to me happened. Jim Elliott asked me to marry him. This was after five years. We had known each other in college. Jim had confessed his love for me, but he said, as far as I know, God wants me to remain single, perhaps for the rest of my life. So you go to Africa, if that's where God wants you, I'll go to South America. That's another long story that I won't go into. But when he proposed to me in the middle of that year, when I was living in the Colorados, he appended a very stringent condition to his proposal. He said, I will not marry you until you get, until you learn Quechua. So now I was supposed to start on the bottom rung of a third language ladder. I didn't think it was too high a price to pay for a man like Jim Elliott, so I said yes. <laughs> but I continued. I went back to work on the Colorado language. But eventually, of course, I had to move over to the other side of the Andes, to the eastern jungle, to where I could learn Quechua. Leaving all of my language materials, which I had managed to finish, the reduction to writing of the language, and those of you who are not very familiar with the linguistic process, the reduction to writing is not by any means as difficult as the translation. So I had done all the reduction to writing. I had been coaching my two British colleagues in how to use these materials and they could proceed on the basis of what I had done. So I left all of that material with these two women, moved to the eastern jungle, and began the study of Quechua. One of the most exciting moments in the day was the shortwave radio contact, which we had with all the Indians, all the missionaries in the jungle. Each station called in to the missionary aviation base every day so that we could find out if anyone needed a flight, if there was any illness or special reasons for flights. So we all called in early in the morning, and I would hear my fiancé's voice every now and then. He was on another station a long way away, and I always enjoyed that. But one morning when he came on, there was a very strange tone to his voice, and he announced that the entire station on which he had just spent that year repairing three buildings, building two brand new ones with his own hands, the entire station had gone down the Amazon in a flood, completely wiped out the entire jungle station on which he and Jim he and Pete Fleming had been working. And once again, the third why. What are the disciples' expectations? We'd like to think that everything's going to work out very neatly because, after all, I'm being so obedient to God. God's going to be nice to me. Well, God is nice to me. He never is anything but. But he bewilders me. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour, said William Cooper.
The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Just a few weeks after the flood, I received a letter from one of my two British colleagues telling me that all of my language material had been stolen. There were no Xerox copies in those days, and there were no tape recorders, so there was no copy of anything. All of my charts, all of my notebooks, all of my three-by-fives, everything that had gone into the reduction to writing of the Colorado language was in one suitcase, which was stolen. Well, of course, we knew that God could get that suitcase back, and of course, we prayed that he would bring it back. Uh, we certainly didn't have the faith to bring the, to ask God to raise Macario from the dead or the woman who had died from the dead or to bring the station back up the river. Our faith faltered on those things, but certainly God could get the suitcase back, so we prayed. And guess what? We didn't get it back. Everything that I had done down the drain, as it were, everything that Jim had done down the river, and the Lord is saying, will you trust me? Whose are you? You are not your own. You gave up your right to yourself. You abandoned yourself to me and you said, Lord, do anything you want with me. And you took up the cross, didn't you? What did you expect? A disciple's expectations. Not peace, but a sword. Loss, yes, but gain as well. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body. You're worth more than many sparrows. All will hate you. You will be arrested, flogged. Brother will betray brother. Jesus could never be accused of false advertising. He laid it all out, clear in the daylight. Another one of the ancient writers that I feed on so often wrote this passive fidelity consists in the loving acceptance of all that God sends us every moment which of these two requirements of holiness is beyond our strength the passive part of holiness is even easier for it consists merely in accepting what most frequently cannot be avoided and in suffering with love, that is to say, with resignation and sweetness, what is too often endured with weariness and discontent. Am I speaking to anyone this evening who feels weary and discontent and perhaps a little bit angry with God? Or feeling as though God has really not appreciated what you did for him? We, learn, we must learn to suffer with love, with resignation and sweetness. Perfection does not consist in understanding God's design, but in submitting to them. They are God working in the soul to make it like himself. I don't want anything more than I want that. I don't think I want anything that comes even as close as that. I want to be conformed to the image of Christ. The Apostle Paul said everything that happens fits into a pattern for good to them that love God. Floods, fires, robberies, murders, 
no exceptions. But he goes on to explain in the very next verse, which is Romans 8.29, what it is that he's up to. It's not all mystery. He explains some things that we might be shaped to the image of his son. Now, what does it take to shape an image? It takes the hammer blows, doesn't it? And there are some hammer blows in all of our lives. There were four in that first year before I had been a missionary, one full year. The hammer blows are followed with the chippings of the chisel, and those are painful, a little bit smaller things perhaps than the hammer. And then there is that daily rasping of the file to smooth off those sharp corners and those rough edges. And I don't think a day goes by that God does not continue his sanctifying, purifying work of conforming us to his image. Perfection does not consist in understanding God's designs, but in submitting to them. They are God working in the soul to make him, to make it like himself. The whole essence of the spiritual life consists in recognizing the designs of God for us at the present moment. At the present moment. And I'm delighted to see a whole row, row of young girls right down here in front of me. And I can just imagine that some of you are thinking about being a missionary. Probably all of you are thinking about a, being a, a wife someday. And you don't know what God has in store for you. And if you had time to ask me all the questions that are in your minds, one of the questions I'm sure would be, how can I know the will of God? Or how did you know God wanted you to be a missionary? And there's a very simple answer. You learn the will of God one step at a time. He is not going to give you a preview of coming attractions. Suppose God, when I was your age, had told me about those four things that were going to happen in my first year as a missionary. It certainly would have dampened my ardor a little bit. He has much more wisdom than to do that. The whole essence of the spiritual life is recognizing the designs of God for us at the present moment. And at this present moment, here in this church, in the pew where you are sitting, God is speaking to you about something. I don't know what. But it, only, it is only this present moment. There's not a one of us that knows we have the next one. In this present moment. Souls who walk in the light sing the hymns of light. Those who walk in darkness, the hymns of darkness. They must both be left to sing to the end. The part and the motet which God allots to each. I've looked back many, many times over those, that first year, and I have seen the hand of God so many times. One time, my husband and I were having dinner with the pastor and his wife before I was to speak the next day in his church, and during that dinner, the wife told me about a very, very difficult time in her life, the most difficult thing that she'd ever gone through. But she said, it was your book called These Strange Ashes that got me through that. Well, my book, These Strange Ashes, you needn't look for it at the book table because it's been out of print for a long time. 
but it tells the story of those first of that first year and those four hammer blows. And I thought to myself, if somebody had told me about this woman's sufferings and asked me to suggest a book which would be helpful to her, I can assure you the last book I would have ever offered to her would be These Strange Ashes. But she explained to me how it had helped. And the next day she came up to me after I had given a talk very similar to this evening's talk. And she said, Elizabeth, did God ever explain anything about why he let those things happen that day in, those, in that first year? And I said, well, yes. Oh, she said, tell me about that. I smiled and I said, well, it was last night at your dinner table. And she looked at me so utterly, what are you talking about? And I said, well, didn't you tell me that God had helped you because of the testimony in that book? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I never thought about that. So I said, well, I think God probably had a few other ideas in mind, too, but he had you in mind. And you were guided to that book. And the title of that book comes from a poem by Amy Carmichael, and with this I'm going to close. It's entitled, These Strange Ashes. I plagiarized her title on my book, but I could never have written this poem. It's like a dialogue where she calls herself the sun, S-O-N, talking to God, and then God's answer. But these strange ashes, Lord, this nothingness, this baffling sense of loss, and his answer is, son, was the anguish of my stripping less upon the torturing cross? Was I not brought into the dust of death, a worm and no man I? Yea, turned to ashes by the vehement breath of fire on Calvary. O son beloved, this is thy heart's desire. This and no other thing follows the fall of the consuming fire on the burnt offering. Go on and taste the joy set high afar. No joy like that to thee. See how it lights the way like some great star. Come now and follow me. <laughs>